Hello and welcome back to the Perpetual Outsider podcast with me, John Bensalia. Thank you for joining me. Uh, today we are looking at episode three of The Time Monster. So without further ado, let's gear up shiny disc, press play in five, four, three, two, one, go. I command you. Yes, here we are. Still more on time. That's good. So. Uh, where do we leave the story? Yes, we left it with um, uh, one of the uh, the Atlantis peoples, Crassus, vanishing from the spot and then reappearing in 1972 Earth. I'm not even going to get started on the uh, the unit dating conundrum. That is somebody for a uh, that is for a person with a brain the size of Jupiter, and I can only. Um, Manage for brain the size of one of those little specks of dust that you get in uh, that you get in space. So uh, it's well beyond my comprehension, I'm afraid. Um, so yeah, here we go with the reprise, uh, slightly edited, and this was the worst episode, I think, um, in condition-wise, which is uh, represented as one of one of very few extras on the DVD, actually. It's uh, it's in really poor condition, and you can see how much work has gone into it because the original the original version you can get the original print of it is in terrible condition. I mean that you know the juddery action of the the characters, the smeary blurry condition of the prints it looks awful. So again, you know, well done to the restoration team for making it look as good as this actually. So um. We're about to see the the kind of economy that they did with some of the 1970s stories. They um, they would get rid of one character and replace them with another kind of substitute character. So Percival is not long for this world. He's about to be gobbled up by uh, the appearance of Kronos. And he's replaced by Crassus, who is just as ineffectual, really. He's, he doesn't really do much. I mean, he kind of comes up with these kind of... Uh, these threats about how how Kronos will uh, will destroy the world, and how the monster is but a mere child, and is uh, is like you know when he's trying to control Kronos, you know he's he's like a kid trying to control an out of control puppy. And I think uh, the I'm not sure whether this was going to be the original cliffhanger. I'm not sure if it was under running, but I do know it was filmed in the. Uh, in the same the previous studio session as the um, uh, as the first block, this was from the first block of the studio sessions, which, which I guess is why um, John Wise is still there. And after John Wise has gone, they move into the second block. Uh, if, if that makes any sense, I'm still not making any sense, am I? You know, um, yeah. Again, I left the brain in the fish tank this morning. There you go. Seal of the High Priest, Crassus or Kronos, whatever. From this seal. So Kronos is a killer. Um, and the Master thinks it's amazing. And I'm trying to think of other seal songs. And uh, there's a future dove paradise when Kronos appears because he's uh, a superimposed uh, dove suddenly appearing on the scene. That's enough. Terrible seal jokes for now. Yeah, um, unfortunately, the Stuart is about to regress back to being his young self, and I think they, uh, like I said in the in the last episode, I, th I think the production team missed the trick there. 
I, I think it would have been quite interesting to have Stuart actually remain an old man and the doctor actually not find a cure. So it's a very easy kind of get out clause for that problem, which I think is a shame, you know, just simply because Kronos comes back and reappears and uh, messes up, messes time about. Yes, you can t you can tell the difference between film and uh, studio because Benton Terry is a lot longer in the in the film scenes and you know sideburns were a lot longer as well, so you can tell what was filmed when and you know judging by the hair. Yeah, there goes Stuart. Not quite lining up the uh, the de aging shots that well, but you know it's not not the easiest thing to do. Come, Kronos, come. Right, so this is our first proper appearance of Kronos. There's the dove. Which, it, that bit works well with the kind of blurry appearance. But when he actually goes full-on giant budgery guy like he's here, it, <laughs> it looks a bit comical. <laughs> and he's just eaten up Percival. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really quite sure what happens to the characters. Because I think in another episode, I think further down the line, it might be episode four or five, the Master actually says they're, um, they, they're destined to spend their days in, in, the, in the mists of time and space. So presumably, poor old Percival is out there in, um, in time and space, just getting very bored. Although I, I prefer the alternative, which is what the book says, that he's, is that he's utterly consumed by the, by the fiery power of Cronus's wings. Which is, I think, along the lines of what Uncle Terence wrote in the book. Yeah, I, I think I prefer that alternative. See, this can't have been easy. Um, the actors are having to move at different speeds because um, Wanda Moore is having to pretend to go very fast, and then um, John Pertwee is having to kind of run as fast as he can to catch up with her. And I think I think they you know they they did it with video disc I think video disc of course they used to use a lot in the uh, for sports you know like you know action replays that sort of thing and uh, in Doctor Who they use it to slow down speed up and uh, reverse and forward and you know that sort of thing and uh, the Doctor Who team would have to borrow it from the the grandstand team yeah Nicholas Courtney not really faring so well there because it just looks like he's a uh, he's just jogging on the spot there, very, uh, very slowly. Yeah, that's that's not quite as good. But yeah, I, I, it's um, it's quite rare for the for a John Pertwee story to actually look at the concepts of time because you know Doctor Who is all about time and space. Um, I'm just trying to think of any others that actually of this period that actually um, explore the concept of time. Time worrying? No, that's that's just about going back in time. Yeah, the invasion of the dinosaurs does actually, um, because that you know that's got the whole concept of rolling back time to the uh, the pure golden age, which actually wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, but it's that and this one are very rare examples of actually exploring the concept of time, which of course you know would become quite commonplace in the uh, in the modern day series. Don't even get me started on Stephen Moffat and his tiny mimey tosh. Uh, I think I'm getting migraine. Oh, 
puny child says Crassus. And it's, I suppose, it is one of the times that the, the master is completely out of his depth. Because um, it, it was the same with Azal in, uh, in The Demons, because at the end of episode three, he's literally cowering and, cowering and screaming in fear from the might of Azal. And you've got a similar deal in, uh, in The Time Monster, because in the end, he actually can't control Kronos, who just goes on the rampage in, uh, in a later episode. I can't <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but this guy is just—he's just. He's just <laughs> Again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm criticising acting because it's, it's not easy to act. Um, I, I couldn't act for Toffee, but this guy is, is just a little bit. How—how uh, how can I be polite? Um, just not much cop, really. Uh, Aidan Murphy is hippies. It's it's just the whole appearance. Everything is just is just laughable, really. But luckily, to compensate, you've got George Cormack as Dalios, and George Cormack is is one of the best guest actors, I think, of this story. I think he's I think he's marvelous. He really brings across that kind of world weary, age old you know, personality of Dalios. He really gives the impression that he's been around however many, you know, years he has. I think something score years, he'll say in a minute. I'll probably talk over it, but never mind. But he's 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 very good. You know, he even looks the part. He even looks, you know, really, really old. I mean, he's probably, you know, 50s or 60s when he performed. No, he would have been... Da, 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 64, no. 63 or 64, I don't know, it's on the head. I think George Cornett was born in 1908. So, um, yeah, but I, I suppose back in those days, I, I guess um, people just looked older than their age. I mean, <laughs> what is it, that light? <laughs> it's just a little bit, a little bit fake. Um, yeah, I, I warn you now, if, if you... Managed to make it to episode five. There might be quite a lot of laughter in the uh, the hippiest scenes for episode five because it is just a little bit not particularly brilliantly active. But uh, yeah. So anyway, what I was saying about um, yeah George Cormack, he he was a success in this, and I think obviously Barry Letts had seen him in this, and so he cast him again as uh, uh, the Campo Rinpoche in Planet of the Spiders via the Doctor's Guru. Which which is quite a nice little dovetail with the scene that comes later in the uh, in the story when the doctor's remembering about the uh, you know the uh, the daisiest daisy scene which we'll which we'll get onto later. Uh, but for now, it's marmalade sandwich time. Oh, I mean, it's you know, I mean, it's full on, full on Paddington Bear here. I mean, the best that Stuart can come up with is a marmalade sandwich and um, and a cup of tea. As the Doctor presents a, um, a rather convoluted explanation for what's going on. And um, this is kind of like the ultimate in the, the domestic arrangement of unit years. You know, they're, they're chattering on about, you know, the perils of Kronos and the, uh, the concepts of time over a marmalade sandwich and a cuppa. Which is, you know, it's as Doctor Who as you can get, really. I suppose it's, uh, you know, with, without wanting to sound too parochial, it's probably about as British as you could get, really. You know, I mean, uh, no, no other um, science fiction show really, really is as 
down to earth as Doctor Who when it comes to um, ex explaining uh, concepts and exploring concepts through, you know, this very kind of British uh, kind of way of uh, of eating marmalade sandwiches and drinking tea while doing so. Um, yeah, actually, I mean, did Ruth make those? I mean, she's going on about all all this feminism, and yet she's making marmalade sandwiches, for God's sake. I mean, I like marmalade with toast, but marmalade sandwiches, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think the jury's out on that one. But Paddington Bear loves them. Yeah, my daughters love Paddington Bear, so uh, they just give him a pretend marmalade sandwich to chew on. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really quite sure whether the Time Monster would actually work better as a four-parter rather than a six-parter, because a fair bit of this is padding. I mean, there's a lot of kind of quite talky scenes, and I, I suppose for modern-day views, it maybe is a, is a little bit too slow. But for an old git like me, it, I, I quite like the way it can it it can breathe a bit more. You can kind of... It's got a more leisurely pace. You don't always have to have this kind of crash bang wallop and, you know, kind of trying to fit too many scenes into, you know, a 45 minute format. You know, I think, you know, I, I, I like the language pace that, you know, that it has. But, I, you know, I, I can understand that maybe it can maybe slow down a little bit too much at times. I mean, do we really need, you know, these constant scenes of a master whining a, what is that thing? It's the same thing he had in Terror of the Autons. Um, that, you know, that kind of dial thing that he had to summon the, the nesting consciousness. Um, but, yeah, you, you in modern-day Doctor Who, you wouldn't get kind of quirky scenes like this when the Doctor tries to come up with some kind of jamming experiment, which is, again, a very kind of British sort of thing. He's doing it with, you know, a bric-a-brac and junk, you know, like an old wine bottle and a cork and a... Um, a wine bottle uh, opener and and tea leaves that uh, that Stuart is pouring there. Actually, maybe Stuart made the marmalade sandwiches. I don't know. But yes, it's it's just such a quirky concept and one that's really only uniquely Doctor Who. I think. I mean, I, I don't really think you would have got this in Star Trek. To be honest, you know that that was kind of a little bit too. It's great. Don't get me wrong. You know, I, I do enjoy. The original run of Star Trek, but it can get a little bit too po-faced for its own good. But I, I, I do like these kind of quirky, unusual um, kind of diversions that you get in Doctor Who, the original run of Doctor Who. I, I don't really think it's a shame that you don't really get that anymore in in the modern run. Tea leaves, yes, yeah, it's, it's something very kind of quirkily eccentric. He, even about the Pertwee Doctor, who's not. The most eccentric of doctors, but he can still come up with uh, the odd uh, eccentric moment or two like this. I'm, I'm not really quite sure how tea leaves can help jam uh, the, the master's signals, but there you go. That's, uh, that's something that I don't think we'll ever know. But it, it does move. It, it, I suppose it does move quite slowly because you've got crosses reaching out. You know, sort of like. Master, he says, trying to do a slow down voice, and then you got you cut back to the doctor spinning the the gadget, and then uh, and then 
between all that time, you know, Crassus has very slowly reached out his hand, and only then does the, the crystal start glowing. So it is a, a little bit, a little bit slow, but hey-ho. I'm sure Big Finish could do like a, a doctor and master at school. I mean, um, you know, they could get like, you know, kid actors and, uh, you know, they, they could play the, you know, the young doctor and the young master and uh, the days when they would uh, jam each other's time experiments and, uh, you know, the master would get the doctor to do his homework. Oh, that, that is crying out for a Big Finish adventure, a prequel, if you like. So if anybody else steals the idea, you heard it first here, and I'm claiming the copyright for that, okay? No questions asked. This episode is full of kind of um, quirky ideas and concepts. I'm not really quite quite sure if they uh, advanced the plot or not, but you've got, you know, here the Master's now got this kind of uh, risk TV gadget, which, uh, which again, will make a killing. Well, no, actually, you, you would get it these days, because I suppose you've got... Um, you know, the Apple wrist things, I suppose. Um, so you've got those. But you can see the action. Yeah, I mean, it's it's totally ahead of its time. Baronet-style Doctor Who. You know, you had the ecology. And you had this. And I'm trying to think of other examples. <laughs> yeah, you had, uh, yeah, Pandemic in um, Doctor Who and Silurians, which is, uh, you know... Sadly, still hasn't gone away. But yeah, back, back to the whole kind of concepts of uh, the quirky concepts. You now got roundheads and cavaliers suddenly appearing out of nowhere, and it it is it is using the the concept of time quite well, actually. But again, they don't really advance the plot a great deal. But it's uh, but it's you know it's a it's a fun diversion. And like Sergeant Benton, Mike Yates' hair is a lot longer in the, in the film scenes. And his sideburns are a lot longer as well. Obviously, he didn't get the continuity right there. Yeah, if, if, there, was, if there is one complaint that I have about uh, the character of a brigadier, it's that he can be made to look a bit of a, a, bit of a fool in this story and, and also The Three Doctors. I mean, he he doesn't understand. He can't comprehend that there might be all these unusual um, roundheads and cavaliers and elements from the past come to fight the unit troops. When um, he he would have taken something like that at face value in in the early days, you know, because uh, he's um, you know even in the web of fear, he's he you know the concept of a of a police box containing a spaceship would sound absolute madness to the average joke but the brigadier instantly says right we'll go and rescue it we're going you know no matter how balmy it sounds we'll go and take it away and bring it back to the doctor but in this one he he assumes that mike has been drinking and in especially in the next story the three doctors um he he, he just can't grasp the uh, the gravity of the situation and he just thinks it's um you know the tardis has been uh is is a done with mirrors and as b is just been uh, he's been transported to Chroma, and it just yeah it just makes the brigadier look a bit of a bit of a bit of an idiot really, which is which is not what the brigadier is at all. I mean he's he's a he's a sharp cookie, especially in the early stories. I mean I, I can understand to a degree why Barry Letts wanted to kind of soften 
the character of a brigadier and kind of maybe add another dimension. But I'm I'm not really sure it, it does him that many favours. Full of old world charm. <laughs> um, what does the doctor say here? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I I just remember reading that that book called the Discontinuity Guide, and I I know the doctor is meant to say, "Oh, do buck up with a B, brigadier." Um, but yeah, it does sound like uh, something that rhymes with buck. Which I'm, which I'm not going to say because uh, the RSS podcast does not allow for uh, expletive language. And I certainly wouldn't want my daughters listening to this and uh, because they're only six and four years old and I don't want them listening to this and saying, why did daddy say a rude word? You know, what does that mean? I certainly, certainly don't want that. But uh, yeah, it, it does make me laugh because I remember the discontinuity guides thought that uh, it sounded a bit like a rude word. But anyway, moving on. Uh, here we go with more um, historical hijinks with unit troops. Yes, it's a little bit comical the way the grenade lands and there's that kind of noise and they go bow. And the troops just vanish like that in a puff of smoke. And we can't, we can't actually coming into the cliffhanger already. It's, uh, it's gone quite quickly, this episode. What the master calls the grand finale, which is the other the doodle bug from the from the war, and th this is quite a good cliffhanger. I think it's probably uh, dare I say it. I think it's actually the best of the five. It's quite unusual because the it's not the doctor or the immediate companion who's in danger, but um, you know it's it's Mike Yates and his troops are in danger, but they. The um, script does give it some welly, and also the acting gives it an extra bit of welly as well, um, which which we'll come to in a minute because uh, we're, we're in the run up to it. But it is a good one actually, and I suppose you know the whole concept of it, it works as well. You know the, this whole horror of you know being bombed by you know uh, doodlebug, you know, and it it would have been especially potent, you know, to. Uh, contemporary audiences at the time. I mean, I, I can't imagine what the hell, um, you know, the experience of war was like. But you know, it's a, um, it's a nineteen seventy two audience. You know, there, there were you know many people who had who had lived through the war and uh, who had survived it, and you know, they will recall the horrors of war. So it would have been a much more horrific cliffhanger, you know, to to those that lived through it. And here we go. Yeah, N Nicholas Courtney does. He he really does well here. It's it's a really good bit of acting, and I especially like the way he says Mike. You know, if a brigadier only calls his friends by their first name, you know, in times like this, when someone's in danger, Mike, can you hear me? That's that's great. That's a wonderful cliffhanger. Or um, yeah, he calls him again, Mike, in uh, in the end of the Green Death when he. When Mike is clearly upset by Joe uh, running off with uh, Professor Jones. Now, I've, I've just given the game away. Mike, uh, Mike leads to fights another day. But as it is, um, it's, it's a good cliffhanger. Sorry. Like I said before, if you um, you should really be watching the stories first if you, if you don't want uh, spoilers. But anyway, 
But that's uh, that's by the by. Um, in the meantime, this is John Ben Siley uh, signing off from episode three of the Time Monster. I uh, hope you enjoyed uh, remembering uh, the story with me. Um, I'll be back for episode four very soon. But in the meantime, thank you for joining me and goodbye for now. <laughs>